Welcome. Julie, welcome back to Saltier Politics. It has been quite a few months and the world been, feels like it's still blowing up. I know. Um, I think the last time you and I spoke was right when this war began, or I'm sorry, this uh, quote unquote special military operation began. It's been just as horrific as I thought it was going to be. And even more so to some extent, um, I never, as you know, going back to even our Fox days, never had high hopes for Vladimir Putin. But to watch this genocide, really these crimes against humanity taking place on European soil and in a developed country is just amazing. Not that it is any less horrific when it takes place in uh, other parts of the world. I think part of the crime of the American news media is that we don't pay attention to things that take place um, among people who don't quote unquote look like us. Mm-hmm. So it's not to diminish what happened in Syria, which Vladimir Putin perfected um, his genocidal tendencies uh, with Assad in Syria and, and so on and so forth, certainly in Afghanistan and Darfur and many other places. But again, just from strictly a personal perspective of somebody who was born in the former Soviet Union and lived there and my formative years were there and and studied it and you know, has a graduate degree in it and and just watching all of this unfold in a place where I lived, although I'm not Ukrainian, I'm Russian, um, was it's just, it's horrific. It's devastating. I cried for probably, as I said, the first time in, in recent memory, I think the last time we were on, we spoke about this, watching these kids and, and these refugees pouring over the border and what's happening to them. And that was before we found these mass graves of, of children being slaughtered, um, not just from airplanes, but with bullets to the back of their head. It's just horrific. And Joe Biden was 100% right. I'm just sorry that uh, his own people walked it back, but he is right. Putin's got to go. And he is the most dangerous man in the world, always has been. He's got to go one way or another, and I'm not quite sure why the United States is not doing more to take him out and why the rest of us are not doing more to take him out. There's this allergy to using the word regime change, but, and I understand why, going back to our experience in Iraq and Afghanistan, but this is a genocidal person who is... The pictures that came out today or that we were seeing like just over the weekend and today about the mass graves like around Kiev have been horrific and like people in body bags in huge trenches. Um, Are those images like getting back to Russia, you think? Because the Russian government is obviously saying they're fake, but not the case. And, And how do you think the people inside of Russia like they're seeing these images? I don't know. I think there's a certainly a percentage of the population in Russia that understands what's happening and, and doesn't expect any different from their leaders. <laughs> this is sadly, uh, this is par for the course for, for what Putin's predecessors have done throughout history. Uh, it's not like Joseph Stalin didn't line people up and, and shoot them in the back of the head. Or certainly the communists, the Bolsheviks did when they came to power. But um there's also, I think, a, a very strong propaganda 
machine at play if the only thing that you have access to, the only quote-unquote information you have access to is the information that, that Putin's proxies are feeding you, then you don't think anything's wrong. You think you really are denazifying Ukraine, that you're liberating it from Nazis, which of course, if you are if have any kind of Russian or Soviet consciousness, nothing is more terrifying than Nazis because you lived through <laughs> probably the worst of what World War II was, was on your soil. So I understand how that is absolutely the right terminology to use with Russian people. It's just false. I mean, it's just blatantly false. And look, we, you and I talked about this going back to God, back to when we used to do those segments on Fox, which, which we kind of got into trouble for. But Putin is nothing more than a KGB thug. That is what he is. He doesn't know anything other than that way of life. And when your life consisted of being a KGB thug and that long history of that quote-unquote intelligence service, this is what you know. This is how you take care of your problems. And I don't know for the life of me why everybody went ballistic jumping down Joe Biden's throat about him using the word that, that he has to go. Of course he has to go. Is there anybody on earth besides the Candace Owens of the world or the Tucker Carlson's of the world who don't think he should go? Correct. I mean... Another thing I wanted to get your take on was the reports that, you know, how the Russians are doing in Ukraine, because it's not like an immediate takeover, what many people thought it would be that uh, a lot of the Russian officials are afraid to tell Putin how they're really doing within Ukraine. What did you take about those headlines? Well, I think there's, I look, first and foremost, I think like any really powerful leader he is surrounding himself only with yes men, people who are going to yes him to death, people who are going to be of like-minded. Maybe they didn't come, maybe they didn't start out being like-minded with him, but I think they understood that in order to survive and thrive, they have to go along with all his crazy ideas. And by the way, that's you don't have to be a genocidal maniac like Vladimir Putin to operate this way. We've seen repeatedly with our own politicians, it often happens where they just surround themselves with yes men who understand that if they want to survive and thrive and advance, they have to go along with whatever the leader wants. So that's not atypical. Um, what's fascinating is that it's gotten to the point where it seems that they lied to him and told him what he wanted to hear so much so that they got caught with their pants down. On the other hand, I don't know if they lied to him or if they all believe this nonsense because it's been indoctrinated in them for so long that they believe what they believe. Look, the one thing you have to understand about Russians is that there is a historic insecurity, but also a historic arrogance to, to, to us, <laughs> to Russians, um, that I think is, is somewhat unique, but maybe not so unique. On the one hand, they are the great Russian people and the land you know, the people who in their minds 100% single-handedly defeated Adolf Hitler and Napoleon and other invaders throughout history. And, and they have some grounds to believe that they certainly, I don't know about single-handedly, but certainly a lot of grounds to believe that they were able to repel people that that others were not. Um, they are the land of, of, you know, Dostoevsky and Tchaikovsky and Tolstoy and, 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 
Sakharov and, and Mendeleev and, and, you know, you name a scientist or you name a artist or you name a musician and, and whoever it is, they they can see go toe to toe with any other country with respect to their arts or their sciences. And that's true. On the one hand, you have that. On the other hand, you have this constant fear that you're under attack, that you're always going to be attacked through no fault of your own. So that why did I'm going to just use the two examples I used before. Why did Napoleon feel the need to attack Russia? Like they don't know why he just showed up and, and, and invaded. Why did Hitler feel the need to attack Russia? He just invaded. And that's how they think about it. Right. Like they're perpetually under siege, whether um, it's the Mongol hordes back in the, you know, I don't know when 11th, 12th century, 13th century. I'm not even sure when uh, down to Napoleon, down to Hitler, um, that everybody's constantly against them to the United States. Um, and then they feel also like they're not taken seriously. Their concerns are not taken seriously so that the United States did a victory lap in their mind when, and they're not wrong about this to some extent, that the United States quote unquote won the cold war and they're the defeated party. And the United States is, is the victorious party and the, and the United States looks down on them and doesn't take them seriously as a superpower. All of that combined leads to a very dangerous mentality of I'm going to prove everybody in the world wrong. I'm going to prove everybody on earth wrong. We are able to do whatever we want. We are a superpower. We are the greatest country on earth. And, you know, Russia first, for lack of a better description. On top of that, you have an ethnic component to it that I think we as Americans don't necessarily always appreciate. But they look at Ukrainians and they don't think of Ukrainians as anything other than who they are. Um, ethnically, ethnically, they're the same in, in the Russian mind. A lot of for a lot of Russian people, they were always part of the Russian Empire, more or less. And who the hell are these Ukrainians to suddenly decide they don't want to be a part of us? We're doing them a favor by including them in our orbit. And if you look at Belarus, which always used to be known as Belarusia, they kind of go along with that mentality. Another former Soviet Republic that's going along with, I mean, it's it's kind of striking to me that they're going along with Russia's invasion of Ukraine because ultimately they must understand that their self-determination will be over too. I mean, if the Russians think Ukrainians are part of Russia, Belorussia really, you know, in their mind really is a part of, Bel of Russia. All Belarus means is white Russia. Um, so all of that is a very dangerous combination for the Russian people to believe. And when it's stoked by this weirdo kind of almost Franco type combination of nationalism and the church and the Russian Orthodox church, unfortunately is, is complicit in what Putin's doing. It becomes really, really, really dangerous, incredibly dangerous. And on the one hand, you have to feel sorry for the Russian people because they always have these horrific leaders, whether it's the czars or the communists or now Putin. But then you have to wonder, OK, you know, which point do you start taking responsibility for your own way of life and stop saying, oh, no, this is all foisted on us from the top when it's consistently happened throughout centuries. So, uh, you know, we're at a very, very, very dangerous point right now. And in answer, that's a very long way of answering your question, which is I think there is a huge strain of the Russian people who feel like they're finally 
finally getting it back after the humiliation of the collapse of the Soviet Union, after the humiliation of, of the United States not taking them seriously, they're finally showing the world who they are. They're finally getting that great part of themselves back, which is obviously deranged, but also understandable to some extent. Do you think that there will be a diplomatic solution? And do you think also, second question, that, you know, a kind of North-South Korea-esque thing regarding Ukraine would happen? And do you think that would, what, what kind of result do you think that would end up with? Well, the only diplomatic solution would be to allow Putin to have the Donbass, which is the eastern part of Ukraine, and to let him keep Crimea, which he annexed in 2014. Um, that's to me, that's not a diplomatic solution. That's a reward. That's like you showing up at my house with a gun and saying, "Give me a million dollars," and I and after you beat me up and and you know take a million dollars out of my pocket are compromises that you get to keep half a million and I get to, you know, another day. That's, that's, that's not a diplomatic solution. That's a piece that that's 1938 Sudetenland level appeasement from my perspective. Um, You can't do that. Conversely, Putin knows very well that he can't afford to quote unquote, lose this war without something because what happens to Russian leaders um, when they quote unquote lose something is that they, their lives are lost. Um, a great example, I'll give you a very good example. Um, the Crimean war, which I think many people here don't know about, it's actually where Florence, um, my God, I want to say Florence Henderson, but of course that's Mrs. Brady. Florence Nightingale <laughs> became famous was through the Crimean war, but the Crimean war was basically the Russian empire. They were fighting over the spoils of the Ottoman empire um, with the West with with England and other countries. And same thing, um, the Tsar, Nicholas I, was told that he was going to go in and, and basically same thing, be greeted as a liberator. This was going to be an easy war. Ultimately, they got their asses handed to them. It was an incredibly humiliating defeat for the Russians. And uh, Nicholas I died not long after, but basically died as as a disgraced czar. He didn't get to pose, but pretty much died as, you know, in disgrace. Um, in 1905, Nicholas II and other czar, I don't want to give this whole long history of, of Russia, but this is actually instrumental to what you're saying, instructive to what you're saying. Uh, in 1905, the, the Russo-Japanese War, the same thing. The Russians said, we're going to go to war with Japan. Um, this little tiny island country of Japan, give me a break, it's laughable, they're Japanese, and by the way, they're a different ethnicity from us, and, and incredibly racist um, about the Japanese capability, and, and lo and behold, Japan kicked Russia's ass, this little tiny country of Japan defeated Russia. That beget the first Russian revolution, the revolution of 1905, when World War One started, and there was unacceptable loss of life on the Russian side in World War One. the Tsar ultimately got deposed by the Bolsheviks, who then had a separate peace. Um, in Afghanistan in 1979, when they invaded, part of the reason the Soviet Union collapsed ultimately was they could not sustain the economic impact of the Afghanistan war. They couldn't sustain funding their other priorities as a result of that war, and that's when the Soviet Union collapsed. So if I know this, Vladimir Putin knows this. He knows what happens to Russian leaders when they don't do so well militarily, when there's a humiliating defeat. And 
they die. I mean, you know, Gorbachev didn't die after the collapse of the Soviet Union, but was effectively kidnapped, almost died. Um, Nicholas II died. Um, Nicholas I died in ignominies, I said. He can't afford to lose this or else he will die himself. He's going to die at the hands of his own people, he probably believes. And so what happens to a man like that who knows that there is no room for defeat? However, he spells defeat. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's why I don't know how this ends. Unless it becomes another serious situation where they just murder Ukrainians for the next five, six years. But I can't imagine that the West is going to stand by and continue to watch the footage that we saw this week of, of mass graves um, and, and people streaming across the border to NATO countries and that NATO eventually is not going to act. I just, you know, to me, we're just delaying the inevitable. Of course we're going to act. Right, right. It's just a question of when. And I guess how exactly do you think it will be militarily? I mean, it's like at what point when you see mass graves, do you say never again? And then it's Well, again. That's, that's the question, right? Because to me, I think we are going to end up getting militarily engaged. I just had this discussion with somebody not long ago about the Ukrainians need air air defense systems and that you really can't do that without taking Russian air installations out um, on the Russia side of the border. And somebody said to me, who was arguing with me about this, well, then you can't give it to the Ukrainians because then you'll be attacking Russian installations on the Russian side of the border. And of course that risks starting World War III and you really are you really prepared to go to war with a nuclear power over Ukraine? And I said, well, how many people need to die in Ukraine before you change your mind? And he said, however many it takes, we can't risk World War III. And that was a legitimate viewpoint. Of, uh, and I understand where he's coming from, except to me, the message this sends then is to Iran and to Saudi Arabia, certainly to North Korea, which is already there, uh, and to all these other despotic regimes that you better get some nukes immediately. You better you better nuclearize immediately because if you don't, they're going to go in after you the way they did in Libya or the way they did in other places. But, um, but if you have a nuclear weapon or several nuclear weapons, nobody's going to pick a fight with you. Then you can do whatever the hell you want to your neighbors because nobody's going to pick a fight with you because nobody's going to want to start World War III. I mean, is that really the message that we want to send to the rest of the world? No, it's not. Because then you can you can keep like pushing the boundary, pushing the boundary. Right. And then my other question is, at which point do we what needs to happen? So is it chemical warfare? Because he's already initiated chemical warfare. I mean, the reality is this is not a man who doesn't use things like Levichok, which is a chemical agent against his opponents. Um. He's done it on British soil repeatedly. Right. And, and and Britain's done nothing. He's going to use it in Ukraine. Is that is that the line in the sand? Is it a tactical nuke? Is that a line in the sand? Like at which point they are playing with fire in Chernobyl. So if something happens in Chernobyl, for example, is that... That's not them dropping nuclear weapon, but that's a nuclear event. Is that the line in the sand? Or there's another nuclear, uh, I think one of the largest, if not the largest nuclear power plant in Europe is in Ukraine. 
Is that when they capture that and put that at risk, like where where is the line that the West is prepared to draw? Because this man is not going quietly. You're not going to have a diplomatic solution with him unless you give him what he wants. And the minimum that he will take is a recognition of the Donbass. And then prepare to slaughter every what they would call ethnic Ukrainian who lives there. That's what we're doing. That's what we're consigning people to. Another Iron Curtain. You know, at some point, I get that we're weary of war. I get that it's a long way away. I get that it's not our fight, except it is our fight. It is our fight because the damage that he has caused to democracies in the West is incalculable and will continue to cause. Right. That's really important for people to know, though, in that perspective. Um, I guess what what simply for our audience who might not know is the significance of the Donbass? Well, to give us, first of all, I don't think people realize, or maybe they do, I don't want to say they don't, but one thing I think to bear in mind is that there are quote-unquote ethnic Ukrainians and there are quote-unquote ethnic Russians. Um, and even if you were born in Kiev, for example, you could still be an ethnic Russian. And if you were born in Moscow, you could still be an ethnic Ukrainian. Um, And what Stalin did back in the mid 20th century is he actually purposely resettled a lot of Russians in all of the other 14 Soviet republics to ensure there would be no nationalistic strain among any of those 14 republics to break away from the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So that and he himself was Georgian, ironically enough, he was from Georgia, so he was an ethnic Georgian, um, but nevertheless settled a lot of ethnic Russians in, in Georgia and in the Baltics, um, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, um, in Ukraine. And I mean, I can name all the other 14 republics besides Russia, but so Soviet republics. But the bottom line is everywhere. So there are a lot of ethnic Russians living in Ukraine, including um especially in the eastern part of Ukraine, closer to the Russian border. And that's the Donbass. And his argument, very much like Hitler's argument in in the 1930s of the Sudetenland, is, oh, we just want self-determination for, remember how Hitler said in in annexing the Sudetenland, which is part of Czechoslovakia, well, there's a lot of ethnic Germans living here, so we just want to make sure that that they're part of Germany, we just want to annex them, not annex, we want to give them their self-determination, and so um, that's why they can't be part of Czechoslovakia anymore because of the ethnic Germans that are living here. Same exact argument, same exact argument. And you know I'm allergic to Hitler analogies, but in this case, this is a good analogy. Same thing. Oh, we just want them um, to live among their own ethnic cohort. So we want that to be annexed, the Donbass to be annexed to Russia. Um, and it's absurd. I mean, we have borders that were drawn up, recognized internationally, including by the Russians, I might add. Um, I don't know if people realize this, but the collapse of the, when the Soviet Union was dissolved, it was dissolved by the decision of, there were 15 Soviet republics, but by the decision of three of those Soviet republics, Soviet republics, the Russian Soviet Socialist Republic, the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, and the Belarus 
then known as the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic. And the reason that's important is because that's a decision that Russia and Ukraine made together to go their separate ways. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah, I don't think many people do know that. That happened about three, four months before uh, the end of the Soviet Union, which is on Christmas Day, 1991. So that's all really, really important for people to bear in mind, that this is a decision that was made by the Russians in concert with the Ukrainians and the Belarusians. And um, now the Russians are going back on it. There was no provision of, oh, by the way, We'll leave the Donbass up, Donbass or Crimea up for debate later. It, it wasn't. It was just that was that was it. That was the decision. And that's what's so sad about this is if you can renege on those kinds of treaties and under those kinds of agreements, who's to say that Mexico is not going to say, "Oh, wait, wait a minute, never mind. We want Texas back." That's an excellent point. Or France, or France says, eh, you know what, I think Louisiana was, was wrong. We want Louisiana back. Or Russia says, or Russia says we want Alaska back. Right? True. Which, which, which was bought by Secretary Stewart, Seward, excuse me, from the, from the Russians back in 1861, I think I want to say. Um, that's what makes no sense to me. Right. Um, okay. This is very interesting on Russia, Ukraine, but I do want to switch gears a little bit because something huge happened in your career regarding Left Our Voices and the National Press Club. If you'd like to tell people, I'm like, so freaking proud. It's so cool. Well, before we even get to the National Press Club, one of the coolest experiences of my life is, you know, I have this organization, Lift Our Voices, that I've um, launched with Gretchen Carlson, who's our former colleague at Fox News, um, who you and I work with at Fox. Um, and we launched it about almost two and a half years ago, which is scary <laughs> if you think about how fast time has flown. Mm -hmm. But even before she and I got together um, to launch Lift Our Voices, she was walking the halls of Congress almost from the day that she settled her lawsuit against Roger Ailes and Fox News, or I should say Roger Ailes in her case, back in 2016, to try to get her to forced arbitration, which is the provision that prevents you from suing somebody in open court. And it's a way that companies use to really cover up dirty laundry, prevent people from having their day in court, protect predators, the expense of survivors. And it's completely rigged and stacked typically against, um, against the victim and in favor of the company. So she, to her credit, was walking the halls of Congress. Nobody gave her any shot to get any kind of legislation done. In fairness, nothing ever gets done in Washington anyway, and especially in a bipartisan way. But she got it done, which is amazing. Uh, and so there was a bill signing at the White House, I want to say March 3rd, March 4th, I can't remember when, but a few weeks ago or about a month ago now. So we all went down to the White House and it was pretty amazing. She got to introduce, she was introduced by the vice president and she got to, she got to introduce the president. It was just three of them up on stage. And he gave her the pen when he signed the legislation. And it was a bipartisan thing. Lindsey Graham was there. Kirsten Gillibrand was there. Um, a lot of people on both sides of the aisle worked on this legislation, which is just amazing. And being in the White House and seeing this, and it's probably one of the most, not probably, definitely is one of the most consequential labor law changes in 100 years. And will help an immeasurable 
number of, of sexual harassment and assault survivors. And we now want to expand that to include other protected classes like race, like LGBTQ, gender, um, disability. I mean, there's so many other people to protect, but this was what we could get done now. So we took it. And then we also are working very hard on an issue that I think, you know, is very near and dear to my heart, which is getting rid of NDAs for toxic workplace issues. So we gave a speech um, on this past Tuesday, right? I'm, I'm forgetting what time, of, <laughs> I'm forgetting when this was, but it was last Tuesday. Uh, a speech at the National Press Club in Washington, which is also a surreal and really incredible opportunity, really honored to be able to stand there at that podium and give the speech about my personal journey as to why I got so invested in NDAs and getting rid of NDAs for toxic workplace issues. Um, I told a story publicly I'd never told about the governor of New Jersey preventing me from helping a sexual um, assault survivor, um, helping her because he was binding me to an NDA and I couldn't speak to her about what she was going through, which was devastating for me. And, uh, and then after we were done with that, we went to the Hill and started working on that legislation. So hopefully if we're successful, we will get rid of NDAs for toxic workplace issues and make sure nobody's ever prevented from telling their stories again. And when that happens, that will be of all the things I've ever done in my life, the most important thing aside from having my son <laughs> that I will ever, ever have done. What, what did that mean to you being able to speak up there? Cause that's a massive accomplishment. It was huge. I mean, it was just, you know, sometimes I think back on where I was five years ago. I filed my lawsuit against Fox. I think it was five years ago, either today or yesterday. I'm forgetting what time, what date is. But thinking about where I was five years ago, uh, where I am now, and everything that it took to get here and, and that journey. And it's been incredibly hard. Professionally, it's been brutal for a number of reasons that I talked about in my speech. Um, but I think that there are things in life that you can't be quiet about, even if it harms you professionally, even if it puts your livelihood at jeopardy. And I think it's important for people to understand that sometimes you can only push women or everybody, not just women so far until they decide to do something about it. And I think that's why we found founded lift our voices and that's what we're going to continue to do. Okay. Well, that I would like, that's a great note to end on. Um, I mean, what makes me salty is Ukraine. I'm tired of reporting on the atrocities and the horrific things that are, that Russia's, the invasion has done to the country. Um, like having to go through all of the pictures and all of the video every day, it like, just as a reporter, it wears on you, but like, like having to actually be in Ukraine and be a Ukrainian citizen and be there, I can't imagine the toll that it's taken. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know if anything else is making you salty. No, and it's very interesting. I ran into somebody who actually works on 60 Minutes. This morning as I was walking my son to school, I, our kids happen to go to school together, and I said to her that I'd watched 60 Minutes yesterday, and it made me cry in a way that I think the only other thing that's made me cry is 60 Minutes when they did a 9-11 retrospective. <laughs> I literally have not cried at, at, at news except for those two 60 minutes episodes. Um, but just watching these kids and I keep saying this and I get it. I get it that it's not all about me, but just for me personally, just it hits so close to home to have these 
Russian speaking, a lot of them are Russian speaking, little seven, six, eight year olds fleeing their country. And, you know, I, I've been there personally. I, I just can't. I, I watch, I see that and I start crying and I can't stop. And it's probably 40 some odd years of PTSD that's been <laughs> somewhere bottled up inside me that's coming out. But um, it's just horrific and knowing that these children will live with that for the rest of their lives that you are taking kids who should be in school who should be playing outside with their friends and doing all the things that little six seven year old kids should be doing and scarring them like this for the rest of their lives and it really is the rest of their lives I can attest to that um and for what Right. For what? I'm still not sure what for other than some weirdo messianic ethno nationalistic viewpoint of an empire that really never existed in reality the way Putin thinks it did. I, I, I just it's so inhuman to me. It's so like, is there not one shred of empathy that he has? Clearly I mean, I not. Yeah. I don't know how many. I mean, how many kids does he have of his own, right? We don't know because he's got a bunch of kids with different women we don't know about. But I think I another important point you made was the toll on the Russian population, which is something I definitely didn't think about until you brought it up the last time we spoke on the pod. But like how, how, how that is impacting their economy and how like the regular Russian living there is being very impacted. I mean, they're not getting airstrikes, um, but... They're not getting airstrikes, but what they are getting is a deep, uh, for some of them, a deep sense of shame and a deep sense of, I think, remorse. And more importantly, the impotence of not being able to do anything about it, because what are your options? Your options are either A, to leave the country, but then you're leaving everything you know behind and going who knows where, if you're even able to go anywhere, um, if you're even able to get out and live on what your money is now worthless. You can't really convert it to foreign currency anymore. I mean, look, <laughs> I, I've been there. We had $90 in our pocket when we came to the States, but at least we got a visa to come here. At least we could live here. I don't know how, where these people are going to go. And it's not pleasant, right? to leave your country behind, your your life behind, everything you know behind. So that's option one, and it's a virtually untenable option for, for most people. Um, option two is to sit there and know that this is all being done in your name, allegedly, and the deep horror and the deep shame of that, and the fact that everybody in Russia knows somebody who's Ukrainian. It's like living in New York and knowing somebody from, from I don't know, Florida. I mean, everybody knows somebody. And the deep shame that, that comes from that and, and, and that this is all being done for you. And again, nobody's killing them. Nobody's, I don't mean to equate what they're going through with what Ukrainians are going through. It's not even remotely comparable. But this man is not just destroying the world order. He's not just destroying... A sovereign nation like Ukraine are trying to, he's destroying his own country. And 
the ramifications for his country are probably going to be much more long lasting than they are for even Ukraine at the end of the day. So I will end where I started. Joe Biden was right. And I'm only salty about the fact that they had to walk it back. I cannot believe they walked it back. They shouldn't have walked it back. He clearly didn't want them to walk it back. Um, and he's right. That's what I'm salty about, that there was any question that they had to walk it back. Again, because unfortunately, cable news pundits and others decided they were going to jump down his throat about regime change. The same cable news pundits, I might add, who I'm old enough to remember because I was on those sets cheering regime change in Iraq like it was their business because it was their business. So and that is the mic drop. We will end salty politics on today. So this week, Emily, huh? what are you up to this week? Anything good? Um, I'm actually going to a concert Wednesday night, Fletcher. Um, she's like one of my favorite singers. It's at Webster Hall. Even though my hours are 4 a.m. to 1, uh, I'm going to go to a concert and just be exhausted, but I'm really excited. What time do you wake up in the morning? 3.23 a.m. Yikes. 3.23. Yes, because 3.20 is just not quite right, so 3.23 feels like a little later. Oh, my God. I know. It's like having a baby without actually having a baby. I know. It's really, I don't. Because in my head, I can stay up later, but then it becomes nine and I realize, oh, wow, I only have six hours of sleep left. And then it takes down five and it's not great. So we're still acclimating to this schedule, Julie. I, I can imagine. Mm-hmm. I can imagine. Uh, I'm trying to look at my schedule as to what I'm up to this week, but I'm up to nothing. I just more lift our voices stuff. Well, we need to get a drink soon and share and everything. Uh, yeah, a drink would be nice. <laughs> yeah. After, after Easter, because as you know, despite being Jewish, I have given up alcohol for Lent. Again. Oh, yes. Okay. It'll so. be it'll be our little Easter post Easter celebration. All right. Sounds great. All right. Talk to you later, Julie. Bye.